The English Premier League is one of the most high-profile sporting competitions in the world. Across 38 games each year, the difference between those who thrive in this hugely demanding environment and those who don't often comes down to mindset. I'm Patrick Evenden, and on this episode of the Workday Podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul McVeigh. Uh, Paul spent nearly 20 years playing top flight football in the UK for teams including Tottenham Hotspur, um, of which I am a supporter, I should admit, for the uh, full disclosure, uh, Norwich City uh, and Luton Town, as well as playing internationally for Northern Ireland. Following his playing career, he took an unusual path and became the first Premier League footballer to qualify with a master's degree in psychology. We're going to be talking about Paul's playing career, psychology of high-performing teams, and what business leaders can learn from the Premier League. Paul, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'd love to start uh, by talking about your playing career. We, we spoke briefly there about, about Tottenham Hotspur. Um, you signed your first contract with them in 1994, I believe, um, and retired from, from professional football in 2010. Um, tell us a bit about that career and I think quite interestingly how football changed in that time period. Yeah, well, that's it's a it's a big question, and not sure how brief it can be. And uh, firstly, thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate you having me here in Barcelona as well, which is uh, amazing, amazing to be here. And Steeped in football history absolutely. as well as the location. Yeah, <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> I was getting inspiration just from walking around the city. Um, but in terms of you know the 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 career of of playing professional football, in terms of the changes, and they were, you know really drastic changes that that was the biggest thing I think I was living through that period of going from probably even though it was a professional sport I think they were pretty unprofessional professionals well that's the thing well you think about when when, when your career started <laughs> start on um, that era of football I'm thinking the likes of Paul Gascoigne um Brian Robson yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, very was... very different environment to to what what, what, what do we say 2010 yeah. when the sport had become a lot more professional. I think it was athleticism. Yeah. So, so that for me was probably the thing. You know, yes, there's a professional element to it. Yes, we're all trying hard. We're all training hard. We're doing our best. But there's almost like an ignorance. And there's a, what's the easiest way of doing this? So so just to put it in perspective, you know, whenever I came across from Belfast and I joined Tottenham Hotspur, my first day, 1994, was, was just after the World Cup in the USA. And Spurs had just signed Jurgen Klinsmann, which, you know, considering he was a German World Cup winner, he was literally one of the best players in the world with his World Cup winners medal and he turns up. And he came in and was just such a breath of fresh air from his attitude, from his humility, from his level of ability and goal scoring prowess. But what he brought with him was that professionalism because he was coming into a team with the likes of Teddy Sheringham and Darren Andert and Ian Walker and Nicky Barnby and these guys who all loved the night out, you know, and absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think it was just more the English mentality was we'll train hard and then we'll go out and drink seven or eight and ten pints on a weekend. And suddenly not only Jurgen came in, you had the likes of Rude Hullet, you know, Gianfranco Zola and these European top European players coming in, completely changing the way people do it. So I think even before we talk about anything else football related, that's probably just a great point to say that the way that a really successful industry was operating was not the best way for it to operate. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, the fact that we're here, you know, with Workday in a, in a conference where this is all about business leaders. It's all about your clients, your customers, and, and ultimately trying to help them be as successful as possible. 
I think as well, like not certainly not to name any names, but when you read sort of um, stories from professional footballers from those times, and like you said, that that cycle of training every day and then going to the pub all afternoon and into the evening, I find it incredible that they that they managed to maintain the levels that they did working like working under those circumstances it, it seems for, for someone like me it seems like it would be impossible yeah. to do and, and also then and again because i think the whole point of what i want to do in our in our chat today mate, is just to be able to try and take all of this experience this expertise and insights and an understanding of of really getting to the the top level of elite sport and it was elite sport because everything's relative for the time it's like the 100 meter you know, uh, world record is different in 1970 than it is in 2020. So everything is relative to the time. But straight away, we're going to talk about how does that relate to the business world and what people are doing today every single day in their jobs, and it's burnout. Yeah. Because you can't keep going at that pace. You can't work 12, 14-hour days. You can't have terrible nutrition because you don't have time to eat enough food and getting the right liquids into your body. And afterwards, you probably have worked so hard, you're probably quite stressed, under pressure, hitting deadlines. And you're like, what do you do? A lot of people turn to alcohol or whatever else just to go, I need some sort of release. Go home, four or five hours sleep and try and do it again, again, again. You know, it's almost amazing that people can do that for five years, 10 years, 20 years or whatever. So, and I know the world's changing, but there's still so many people, so many companies and industries that just, that's the way they do it. They push them as hard as they can. They try and squeeze out every drop of productivity out of that person. And they go, right, thanks very much, as soon as they can't do it anymore. Yeah. And that was exactly what professional football was like in 1994. And I suppose as well, when you think about the professional game now and how that's changed, you're seeing a lot more players. It used to be that a football player would have his best years probably up until about the age of 30. Yeah. And then from 30, there'd be a fairly steady decline um, into probably retirement around about the age of 35. Yeah. But now you're seeing a lot more players, a lot of professional players continuing, well, producing some of their best form in their early 30s and playing on till to the age of 40. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that's that's to do with back to the, the point we'll probably circle back to about five, five minutes or so at the start of the conversation, was the change in athleticism and that was down to the professionalism of how players apply themselves, not only during training, but afterwards. And, and the, big, the, the big reason for that was the advent of sports science. Yeah, because you know our first, let's say our first gym session was in this pokey little gym under the stand at White Hart Lane, <laughs> the Spurs Stadium at the time in 1994, where you know there was still like cobwebs on the on the machines. There, there was no like what do you call it, like things like treadmills and you know cardio machines or static bikes. There was none of that. Literally a few old weights that people were picking up and trying to do, and that was the gym. Yeah, how embarrassing is that? <laughs> Jurgen Klinsmann, and a world away from like what what it must be like and uh, what it's like now. So 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 to start from that in 1994, and then it was actually Spurs were one of the first who um, adopted having a sports scientist. So they brought him in, and suddenly one sports scientist for the entire club. You know, you probably had 30 professionals, probably more, 40 professionals, and 20, 25 players in the youth team, and one sports scientist. Now let me fast forward you. You know, 30 odd years now forward. And I actually left my role a couple of years ago as the sports psych at Crystal Palace. And just in the academy, there was two sports scientists, two strength and conditioning coaches, two physios, a masseur, a doctor, a nutritionist, a yoga teacher, me as the psych. You know, you're just thinking it's miles away, miles apart. 
But ultimately, it was because players started playing themselves more, becoming more professional. And what I keep going back to, it was the mindset of, this is the way we're going to do it because the way we're doing it at the minute is not working. Yeah, We need to improve and we need to get better. And because there is so much money to be made in professional sport, then the, the people who were running the company started saying, it's not about the expense of this because everybody's starting to do it. It's how can we keep up with this trend of getting better and better and better. Yeah. And I, I guess what we've talking about, spoken about football in the broad sense there. I guess thinking about you coming into that environment in, when was it, 1994, um, and your expectations of that, did that sort of jar with you in terms of what you thought it was to be a professional footballer? Um, and and where did, I guess, the the interest in, in psychology come from in terms of, you know, at what point in your career did you start to think to yourself... Or, or, or were you sort of going on a similar journey as football was going on that journey, if you know what I mean? Well, I, th- I think that I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, all I ever knew was, you know, the, the top top professionals, the top teams, which at the time was Manchester United, you know, the Rand Giggs and the Roy Keynes and the Paul Inces and those guys, you know, watching them on TV and saying, this is what they do. I didn't see the behind the scenes of this is how you get to that level, which again for me is... Probably now as a you know, 45-year-old guy, I'm sitting here and, and the process for me is everything. Understanding how to get from point A to point B is, is so fascinating and, and I love that, that side of things. But actually, I didn't know what to expect. So all I saw was players going and training and then going to the pub after training. So again, getting your head around that. These are professional athletes that go train and they go to the pub and drink all day. So because I was such a young kid and impressionable, I was getting caught up in this. So yeah. I was going training trying to go to the pub all day, trying to keep up with these big guys. And I was only a small guy anyway, and a young kid, and I just couldn't do it. So it was almost, I was getting swept up in this and I had a probably a realization that I couldn't do it. And then it was like, there must be another way. There's got to be an alternative to what everybody's doing. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. And I suppose <laughs> as well, it's, it's a ferociously competitive environment. I guess as you, you, if you're coming into it, like, as, like, like I said, as a 17, 18 year old kid, with this, that, like established professionals who have been in the game and have you know played for the, the uh, national team and things like that. Yeah, they're like there's, they're, a, there's a huge desire they're scoring to fit goals. in they're, and to they're yeah, the yeah. best around. They're like the the they're the golden boots. I was seeing like Teddy Sheringham winning the golden boot, the top scorer in the Premier League, and seeing he was going training and you know going out to the pub as well. So why would I not do it? Because that's that's clearly what works. But of course, this is not what the the European players were doing. And this is where, again, I find it fascinating. So go, going back to how you said the question of how did I end up in this world of psychology, it's it's because I didn't know what I didn't know. So there's that kind of you know unconscious incompetence. If you don't know what you don't know, then that's quite dangerous in certain areas, especially if, like me, you want to have you know really high achievement of being in the Premier League. So I was actually given a book by a friend of mine. Um, it was a book called Awaken the Jam Within by um, a gentleman from America called Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins. And I remember just reading this book and it just, it just completely challenged every single thing that I ever thought, you know, all the way down to, you know, being an Irish Catholic and, and just growing up in that, in that world and going, you know, just because I've been told that, is that something I need to believe? Now, you know, it's something for me that, yes, I've carried on believing that because of, because of my own decision, but it's, it's the fact that it was, well, should you be training this much time a day? Should you be eating this kind of food? Should you be sleeping all weekend whenever you've gone out on a Saturday night? And it was that kind of starting to say, just because of the way your life is now, 
doesn't mean that's where it's going to be in five years time yeah. and if you have the choice or and i know we can't influence loads of things in life and we can't control loads of things in life and you know anyone who has kids out there will realize <laughs> it, that you know probably most parents need to realize very quickly you can't control your kids can't control anything but but pretty much i would agree you can't control anything outside of yourself yeah now and even when it comes to what can we tr- control in ourselves it's really just our reactions to circumstances and so whenever I thought that was such a game changer for me of going, okay, I'm a 17 year old kid. I'm not doing particularly well in the youth team. I'm not keeping up. What a surprise. I'm not keeping up athletically with these guys because I just wasn't living the lifestyle. So my challenge was how do I change my life so that I can achieve what I want to achieve so I can be what I want to be, do what I want to do and have what I want to have in my life. And then it's really simple. It's then, it was almost like a very straight line between and this is where the first person that ever came across had ever um, sh- showed this to me. When Tony Robbins had it in his book where it's essentially your mindset will dictate what your life looks like. Now, I've heard that variation so many times over the next 20, 25, 30 years. But as a 17-year-old kid, to suddenly understand that the way that my mind is, what my attitude is to things, how I think about things, how I react to things, everything going on in my head will dictate exactly what my life looks like yeah and that was such a, like a it was like a punch between the eyes and i was like so what am i doing about this how am i improving myself how am i learn? who am i learning from who am i using as a role model and the fact that i didn't have the best role models around me meant i needed to find another way of doing this yeah i guess as well um coming back to um i i, I, I you were obviously on that journey um, as an individual. You had that interest in, in psychology and things like that. In terms of the the rest of the team around you, um, obviously you you put a um, you you set a lot of store by psychological well being and things yeah. like that. You realised how important that was. Yeah. The same probably wasn't true of the team at the time. But how what role does psychological uh, well being play when it comes to the the performance of a team in a team environment? I think it's everything. I, I think it's it's the single biggest differential in individuals, which ultimately then leads to teams. And it's interesting you're talking about, you know, psychological well-being and, and obviously a lot of people talk around now in, in, um, in the corporate world around psychological safety. And I would just say it was the complete opposite of what it is today. It was like there was none. You know, it was you, you pretty much needed to go in and try and be the alpha male. You needed the one who'd have to be the kind of, you know, the the old fashioned leader, the one who was shouting the loudest, you know, kind of beating their chest the loudest, you know, beating their head. And I imagine walls. like quite a dog dog eat dog environment. Like it's, here's the standard. Anyone falls below that standard, you're out the door. There's no sort absolutely. of there's no sort of gently, gently approach when no. it comes to um to that. And of course, what we know now, it's all about learning and it's all about how can anyone come in at the bottom level and expect to be performing at that, at that level of performance. And, and again, because there was none of this, oh, make a mistake, you know, we want you to make mistakes, you know, especially in, in the footballing world today, you know, there's probably no one better than Pep Guardiola of just telling his players time after time, time after time, do it this way, and if you make mistakes, I'll keep backing you. I'll keep backing you. I'll keep rewarding you by putting you in the team, even if you're making mistakes. Now, that is so different to how I was growing up. And also then throw it out even, even to the wider corporate world now. What happens if someone in your team makes a mistake? What is the reaction? As the manager, 
as the leader, as the you know the one who's ultimately the buck will stop at that person at the at whoever's in charge of the PNL. What happens if someone makes a mistake? Yeah. Are they getting absolutely crucified and like kind of flogged across everybody in front of you know team meetings and uh, or even individually and you know completely completely um, given such a hard time at it? Or is there an attitude of okay, this is what you could have done. This is what you can learn from it. This is how you improve because no one's perfect. And whoever was given the feedback probably had that starting point or they definitely had that starting point of, okay, I need to learn. I need to get better and I need to improve. And again, that attitude to learning, to failure, to success is absolutely crucial. I think as well, going back to the Guardiola point, I guess it's important to have an overall vision in terms of where you want to get to. Like you say, people can make mistakes within that framework as long as they're moving towards what the end objective is, what the end goal is. It's when people, I guess, don't know what they're working towards or don't know what they're trying to build that then mistakes maybe creep in a little bit more. And I think there's two sides to this. One is if you take in a professional capacity what people are working towards every single day. So, you know, the fact that in your role, you'll have your KPIs, you'll have your objectives, you'll have your appraisals, and you'll probably be really clear about what's expected of you. And that just happens across, you know, pretty much every area of the corporate world from top to bottom. And f- this is what I find fascinating about people. See if you said, right, okay, let's, let's just say on average, nine people out of 10 have goals, targets and work. And then if you were to start to asking people, so how many people have, you know, really well thought out really well-constructed, and this is generally the key difference in people, written down goals or targets for your profession or your, from your personal life. How many people would have that? And it's incredible because I've obviously done lots of speaking across loads of different industries, across loads of different countries around the world for the last 15 years. And I know we haven't got onto that from outside of the, the footballing career. But when I ask that question about how many people have well-thought-out, well-constructed, written-down goals in their personal life, about three people in a room of 100 will put yeah. their hand up to do it. I'll, I'll be honest, Paul, I'm thinking about mine. It's probably just get to the weekend. That's, that's normally... <laughs> and, that's, and do you know what? And this is, this is where I'm saying that with completely no judgment. That is not for me to say, you should have goals, you shouldn't have goals, and work you have them, but you don't have them in personal life. Why would you not do that? And then we just say, what's more, what do people value more? Their work life or their job yeah. or their personal life and their family and their kids and their own ambitions? And it's normally, not everybody, but it's normally their personal life. And so I'm not saying you should do. I'm just saying if we have this question of do people have it in their professional life? Normally. Do they have it in their personal life? Normally not. I just think it's the exact same process. Yeah. And because whenever most people value their personal life more, and I just think, wow, there's so much potential in people. So ultimately, this is going to circle all the way back to how did I end up in psychology? And it's because I had, or I feel like I've had so much benefit from the world of psychology by applying it in my own life to be able to sustain a high-level career in professional football, the transition out of an unbelievably tough career and world, the transition out of and do it pretty seamlessly, then have 15 years of, of speaking to companies around the world, delivering leadership programs, being able to pretty much live the life I've always wanted doesn't happen by accident. Yeah. You know, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that at 16, when I started, when I left Ireland, I wanted to be a professional footballer. So that was the goal. But that probably at the time wasn't the most important thing. So even when I'm asking now, do people have goals? The fact that most people don't is probably not even the most important thing. But if you do have a goal, it's then, well, how are you going to do it? 
And yeah. my process as a 16, 17-year-old was not going to take me there. Suddenly read this book and the trajectory of my life and my career went at a whole other level. And suddenly I'm thinking, wow, if I just work on my psychology and my mindset, this will be the best thing I ever do in my life. So what was the step into psychology? So obviously you, you, finished, you finished your football career. Um, you then went back to university to study, presumably? Yeah, so whenever I was playing, I'd, again, the reason why I ended up doing my degree while I was playing was because I set a goal. I had a goal whenever I was 25, 26, that I wanted to start my degree before I finished my career. And then actually ended up being really specific about it that I wanted to start my degree before I was 30. So that's why I ended up, I did my sports science degree. Um, and because- While you were still playing? Yeah, so while I was what, still playing. Like an open university degree? Yeah, yeah. So it was actually from Manchester, Manchester Metropolitan. Oh, okay. So they had distance learning courses. And so because I was doing that as a sports science degree, thinking that might be the path I'll go into because, you know, I was really- really fascinated by the whole physiology and biomechanics. And then because one of the modules on the course was psychology. And I suppose what I didn't realize that I was just doing it pretty consistently. Like I was working with psychologists. I was always setting goals for myself. I was always reading books on it. And it was a bit like until I physically start, started studying psychology. And then I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. This is really interesting. Because then it starts highlighting people like what you just said there. The reason why most people don't have personal goals is because their goal is just to make it through the day yeah. or just to make it to the weekend because you know why? That's tough enough. It's actually, it's hard enough for so many people just to get through the day because life feels like it's right in front of your face. And I completely get that. So that's why I'm saying it's with no judgment that I say most people don't have the goals or personal goals. But what I also say is that there are some people in life who want more and are the high achievers and are actually in a role that tasks them with producing results that just can't be getting through the day Yeah, because that's not going to get you the high performance. So I suppose out of everything that I've done in the football inside and all of the psychology work and the, and the speaking and the leadership programs that we deliver, it's ultimately, it's trying to help really senior leaders become the best versions that they can be using a world-class team of performers from sport business military academia you know world exploring because there are so many people who even if they've got let's say a lot out of themselves almost mm -hmm. maximize their potential they always want more yeah because that's exactly what i was doing in my professional footballing career you know i was playing at spurs and even though it didn't work out for me i then left and went to norwich city but it was like how do i get more out of myself how do i do better how do i score more goals how do i perform consistently and it's that attitude of constantly improving and always wanting to learn. And that's where how it ties in really nicely with the corporate work we do now. Excellent. I'm interested as well. Um, when you were, uh, so when you were studying for your degree, obviously you were still playing at that time. Was it something that you were open about with other players that you played with, that you out the, the outside of football um, that was something that you were interested in, something that you were pursuing, because football hasn't always had the most progressive attitudes <laughs> to, to learning, let's say. Pretty backward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Put it this way, um, we actually, whenever I was at Spurs, we had a young player at the time who was a young player with me um, called Espen Barton. He was um, yeah, he's an American guy, do you remember? Goal, goal, the he went on to work in finance, didn't he? He did. He became a really successful trader. Yes, and also whenever we were playing, because we were going on away trips, he would bring his... his um, 
his studies and all his you know academic books and everything that he was doing on the away trips. So really, he was just being incredibly efficient. He's going to be stuck on a bus for four hours. I might as well start doing the essay or start doing some of the work that I'm tasked with doing. So I think most people were not interested in at the time. I think for me, it was just a case of, and this is probably going back to a little more of a almost an insight of what I was like as a, as a player going through the career, that I was always really, really, I don't know whether disappointed is the right word, but more upset maybe, that people had this perception that just because you played football, just because you could kick a ball around the field, just because you could, you know, you're in a certain type of industry, that everybody towered you with the same brush. I just really, really didn't like that. Yeah. And so I think my way of kind of pushing back against that was, well, I'm going to show you that I'm not this stupid footballer and I'm going to do my degree because if I have a degree, people won't think you're stupid because they're like, well, you can't get a degree if you're stupid. So actually that's one way of doing it. And even whenever I was 21, I had this idea and I'd actually come up with the title of the book at the time that I'd always wanted to write a book called The Stupid Footballer Is Dead. And it was only <laughs> whenever I finished playing in 2010 that a year later I went to Bloomsbury and I'm like, I've got an idea for a book called The Stupid Footballer Is Dead and this is what it's going to be about. And they end up giving me a publishing deal and I, and I published my book. But it was that whole, I don't want people to perceive me of being less than yeah. just because I'm playing professional football. Or just because I'm X, it means that I'm Y. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's an identity thing. And also it, it, was, it was my identity that people were thinking that you're a footballer, so you're this. And I'm going, no, but I'm this and I'm this and I'm all of these things yeah. that isn't, yes, and I play professional football. And without going into too much of a, um, making this into a psychology session, one of the things that I also worked out or maybe realized very early on in my career, I'm talking about like 1920, was being a professional footballer was this extrinsic event. So what I mean by that is that I couldn't choose back to what you can influence, what you can control. I can influence being a professional footballer. So I can be as fit as I can. I can train as hard as I can. I can get myself in the best position for me to be a professional footballer but it's not my decision mm. i need a professional football club or a coach or a manager to come along and go here you go paul here's your professional contract so that means ex extrinsic external to me but that also means and you talked about it earlier in terms of the, the age the players retire when i was coming up to that 30 32 35 it wasn't also wasn't my decision because someone will decide whether they give me a contract or not yeah which ultimately means my entire career is not based on my decision. Yeah. And so if it's not based on my decision, surely it wouldn't be a good idea to have my identity of being a professional footballer with something with I that. can't control. Yeah. So if I can't control it, then I'm going to make sure I have all these other areas of my identity, like I'm going to be a brother and I'm going to be a son. And I actually was a student at the time and I was learning to play the piano and I was learning a language. I was doing Italian. And then I was also being a landlord and I was also had a girlfriend, you know, so all of these different things that yes, this is all my identity. And if suddenly one of those things out of those 10 things is taken away, which is professional football, I still have all these things that make up what Paul is. So that for me was something I realized really early on because I was hearing statements that I would have heard in the Spurs physio room with all the, all the older players like your Gary Mabbitts and you know, Darren Andert and all these players who'd you know, really senior pros at the time going, oh, play as long as you can, we man. And you know, the, the playing days, the best days of your life and you'll miss it when it's gone. You're long time retired. And because I'd read the Tony Robbins book and I'd start to understand about beliefs and how you can have really constructive and helpful beliefs, yeah. 
and also actually quite destructive beliefs about yourself of you know what you're capable of and what you think you deserve and what your whole self-worth is so I just thought that's not the best belief to adopt it the rest of my life after professional football is not going to be as good as what my football days were that's a terrible belief to, to well, adopt. And, and you have a lot of players that clearly struggle to come to terms with that that, that I think you, like you say they're so much of their identity is tied up with being a professional footballer. They come to the end of their career, and, and a lot of players have spoken about this, that they just don't know what to do next and don't, you know, end up suffering quite serious sort of mental health Absolutely. breakdowns and things like that and, and be maybe becoming dependent on alcohol because there's nothing to fill that void. And that's only if they've actually chosen it. Yeah. So if you get to a certain age and they might say, right, I'm going to decide to retire... But how many players have to retire through injury or they want to carry on playing, but clubs are looking at them going, you're just too old, you're too slow. You know, the game's always moving on. The players are always getting faster and quicker and stronger. So actually you're not at that level anymore. So they might want to do it and it's not taken out of the hands, which again, must be devastating. And effectively for, the, for that person, everything that you thought that you were, everything that you've, like you say, you've based your identity mm -hmm. on is just taken away from you. Yeah. And so that's where, when I got back to Norwich, said I had two spells at Norwich, and my last spell, it turned out to be my last spell in 2009-10, we actually won the league. So it was my second title at Norwich City, and, and I just thought, this is amazing. You know, in my career, I've kind of done everything I'd wanted to do by that stage, and what I thought was left that I could potentially do. You know, won two league titles, won a trophy at Wembley, represented my country, had played in the Premier League, had scored at Old Trafford, you played against the best players in the world from your Thierry Henry's, the Stephen Jowers, the Frank Lampard's, the Rio Ferdinand's, and just going, if I can stop after I've just won a league title and make the conscious choice of leaving football rather than football, as we just leaving, said, leaving swallowing me up and spitting me out, that's going to be really empowering. And so whenever I did decide to do that, I actually look back now and it was the best decision ever made to yeah. leave professional football. Because also what you realise is lots of people want to get inside professional football it's it's very intoxicating and it's very sexy and really appealing from the money to the fame to the cars and the houses and all of this stuff but when you're in it it's actually incredibly ruthless and it's cutthroat yeah and it's actually quite horrendous for lots and lots of the time and you're so disappointed because there's so many times things don't work out whether it's not getting selected, not getting a contract, not winning, all of these things that happen yeah. over, over a 20-year career. And whenever you think, I walked away having kind of ticked every box that I wanted to, and then now I had this opportunity to step outside, which ultimately is this tiny little bubble, literally this tiny little bubble <laughs> of this microcosm of society, which is not real anyway compared to, compared to the rest of the world. And I came away from and was bit, had this attitude of going, wow, look at this big wide world out there and all of the things that I could do. And actually, this experience I had is just going to set me up for life because once I started going into this world of keynote speaking and realising there is nobody that's ever come from professional football, especially the Premier League, mm -hmm. who's gone down this route of being a keynote speaker and sharing these insights with the corporate world, which in my experience, so many people in business just want to learn, yeah. whether it's from their own industry or from another industry. They just want to learn, they want to grow, want to get better. So if I can share that and be the only person pretty much on the planet that's either played in the Premier League, and of course, when, when I did finish and five years later, got my master's in psychology, it's actually really, really powerful to be able to share that 
it's, it's a dichotomy of elite performance because yeah. most people, you know, have that tacit knowledge and understanding of achieving something because they've built a business or they've climbed Mount Everest or sailed around the world or whatever. Or you have the opposite end of high, high performance, which is people who haven't necessarily done that, but they've studied a thousand people who have done it and they know all the traits and they know the pathway and the characteristics. They just aren't capable of doing it. So you have the academic side and because I've done both, it does really set me up in that kind of unique position to be able to go in and share what we can take from elite sport, all of the areas of elite sport, mm-hmm. and take them into what ultimately is elite performance in business. Because yeah. not only does the individual need to be performing at the top of their la- top of their game, the team needs to, the company needs to, you know, and it just kind of cascades across. So there's so much crossover and the ability for me to transpose this knowledge from this industry into this industry. It's why we're sitting here in Barcelona after 15 years of, of what my mum calls it, kicking a ball around the face. <laughs> I guess as well to, to that point in terms of transposing what you what you learned from a football environment to um, to a business environment. What what would you say from a psychological point of view were the differences between the teams that you were part of that were successful? You, you referenced the the Norwich team that, that won promotion to those that were that were unsuccessful. What was there was there a greater degree of focus on psychology? Was there a atmosphere in the dressing room that was noticeably noticeably different between those I guess those two two circumstances my instinct from answering that question is I want to say standards but what I mean by that and for anyone who's works in an office or anyone who's who's listened to this who has a has a job in a, in a company it's culture and that's because the standards that are set every single day, as in all day, every day, will dictate whether you can be part of that environment or actually it's not for you. And what I mean not for you is in both ways. Mm. It can be either not for you because the way that people are operating around you in this environment, you've got bigger pictures and you've got higher, higher dreams and, and things that you want to achieve more than what this culture is. Or the opposite of it's not for you is they're doing things at such a high level. They've got such high standards that you simply can't attain that. So that's the culture that ultimately most companies are creating, that are you doing it and you're leading the way, you're driving the way, you know, performances, you're completely ripping up the rule book of, of how do we do appraisals? Why do most people do appraisals? Is it a sit down once a year with their boss and have a chat? Are you using psychometrics? Are you doing a mixture of everything? Or what is it? All the way through to how do we reward people? Mm. what do you think most people get bought into their jobs and their roles as because actually the amount of research that happens in the academic world on this it's not money Mm. it's really not money yeah because especially now with you know like gen z and all of the rest of come so many people are having another reason why they do that job Yes, money's important. Yes, it'll be able to pay bills and yes, it'll do it. But what happens if you're at a point where you can actually choose between a company that pays you the exact same, gives you all the same benefits, but you'll go in and you'll have a company that's thriving and supportive and and put you on a course every year to help you learn and gives you a certain time off to go and work and volunteer and you know, allows you to go and do six months in Sydney or New York or whatever versus a company that pays you the exact same gives you all the same benefits, but it just works you to the bone. And if you do something wrong, they're on you and they're hammering you every single time. And that's just a simple culture thing. 
So this for me is what the difference is. And, and so in, in my, my experience, it was the managers. It was the single person that dictated the culture across the entire club, which I don't think is right. I don't think it's, it's the way to do it. I think you need to have it cascading across all of the levels of a business because you need people to be able to pick up the slack when that person's not in the room. Because yeah. then it's just carrot and stick, isn't it? If yeah. one person's dictating this, well, when they're there, everybody's sort of falls in the line. If they're not there, it's like, right, oh, so they're, they're not here, we can do <laughs> what we want. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. like that kind of school teacher you supply, know, environment. Yeah, supply teacher Supply yeah, teacher, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great, great scenario. But that for me is, is not it. So it's whenever you start to get it. And, and I think at times, and it is only a few times, and I think I'd probably put the two years we won the league, that's whenever it was really came together. And that's whenever it was less about the manager and more about the players setting the standards. So it was something more organic than it, it, something that everyone was bought into as something that was as opposed to something that was pushed from the top. Absolutely. And so I think that's the big problem that, that companies have now is that, of course, there'll be a certain section of the business that will, that will, I don't know, create or decide upon things like the values and the acceptable behaviours and, you know, the mission statement and all these things that a company does. And that's that's great if that's what you're doing, and that's what happens across all the company. But I don't know how many companies have all of this stuff on the brochure, on the website, on the wall, when you walk through certain parts of the, the office. But that's not really what people do. Yeah, you know, It's just really back to the culture is the kind of the, the behavior, the worst behavior that's accepted. Yeah, completely. And, I, and certainly I've had experience of that in my, in my working career where you, you join a company because, I, I don't know, it, it, on paper it's, it's a... a, a won awards for for being a top employer or things like that or you look at the perks that you're getting here and you think wow this company must be fantastic and then you walk through the door and you're like ah it's not like that at all <laughs> and just obviously great, obviously great for marketing the, for the sake of parity <laughs> that that company's not i'm not talking about work there, it's far from it but, but you know what they had a very supportive culture and um and 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 it feels like it's something that is owned and enforced by the employees like you say that that the standard is set by the the leadership team, but it's something that that the culture is something that comes from the, the employees themselves, not something that is imposed upon. And I think that's where you know the best leaders have that ability to take what they're doing because it is a lot to do with the individual, the individual driving it, how they'll behave, how they'll they'll show these values and their their own leadership. And it's the ability to empower people, the ability to go, go on, you do it. I know this is kind of my role and I should be doing it, but actually you do it because this is going to help you more. You're going to learn from it. You're going to make mistakes and you probably will because you're doing it for the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time. But this is the only way you learn. And that and that's it's, where, it comes back to the Guardiola example that you shared absolutely. earlier on. It's about putting that trust in people saying, this is the direction that we're heading in. Here's I, I trust you to be a part of this and I, and, and I trust that whilst you might make mistakes along the way, you're bought into that vision. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's about having that reciprocal trust. But what's just, what's really interesting, so I'll just share a quick example from last night. I was at dinner with some friends, and so they're just about to move. Actually, two of them are just about to move to a new role um, in an ad agency. And the way that they're thinking about it is that they just don't think that they're worth this top-level job because that's historically what happens. Is, is like as people are moving through the ranks or the sort of the levels of their career and, and getting promoted lots of times it's a bit like oh this is a huge step up and what happens if it goes wrong what happens if i mess up what happens if i do something i shouldn't do but just even to have that idea that focus is already saying 
well, what's your psychology? Mm. Do you expect that you're going to go into a higher role, to a better role, something that's more challenging with more pressure and more responsibility? Do you expect you're going to be perfect? So again, the fact that that should be set out from the leader and the people who are bringing them in, because ultimately they're bringing them in because they believe that they can do the role. Yeah. So that's why all of this stuff just becomes really, really important. But going back to the start of the conversation in this question, it was about standards. Mm-hmm. And I think the managers that I saw had the highest standards was just, it was the difference across everything from your shoelaces to your the tie being slightly out of out of position through to, I can remember even like something funny whenever it was, I was in my last year at Norwich City and we were, we were on this unbelievable run of like, we ended up doing like 32 games unbeaten through the whole season. That's why we ended up winning the league. But after about, I'd say, 22 games that season, um, I wasn't in the team because I'd played the first 10, then come out of the team and then didn't get in back in because they kept winning every week. And I remember coming in early just to do this really long, slow run around the training ground, just trying to keep in shape, lose, lose a bit of weight as it was, I wasn't playing as much. And I remember just putting in couple of headphones, you know, the earbuds, and just going off and running around the training ground, just doing my run. This is about half seven in the morning, like two hours before any player should have been in. Suddenly our manager, Paul Lambert at the time, who, by the way, was a Champions League winner in Borussia Dortmund in Germany, you know, multiple league winner with Celtic in Scotland, then become um, a manager, then became our manager at Norwich City. And he just wouldn't, he wouldn't miss a beat. His observation skills across <laughs> everything, whether it's seeing me running around a training ground, whether it's seeing someone that doesn't have the right T-shirt or whether it's seeing whatever it was, just he wouldn't let the standard slip by one second. And first thing he saw was me running around and he was straight out there going, what the heck is this, McVeigh? A holiday camp? 50 quid on my desk before you start training. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm doing something good here. Like I'm out doing extra training. But he's like, would you ever wear headphones when you're playing? And it was almost like a, yeah, that's a really good point. My standards weren't up at the standards of just, that's not that's not what you do when you're playing. So why would you do it now in training? Yeah. So it's almost that everything that you're doing is all leading and building towards, for us, obviously, it was the win on a match day, on a Saturday or or midweek. But of course, it's, it's just simply the process of how do you become excellent? How do you become world-class? How do you get better? And normally... You can do it by yourself. Sorry, you, you you have a you have a manager or like a coach or a leader or someone who's gonna help you with that. And I think that's where the team environment just becomes so so important mm. because the players, the people, the the team members who buy into that quickest are the ones who are the most successful. Excellent, excellent. I guess we've spoken there about what well, well, you spoke about, Paul Abbott at, at Norwich. When it comes to the the psychology of a of a leader, what do you think? business leaders um, and managers can learn from the world of football? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. Um, one, of, one of the first things that jumps out at me is belief. Mm-hmm. I would say that probably the, the single biggest difference that, that I've met in, in people in, in professional football, especially like the, the top ones, like the ones who were, you know, winning league titles and actually played with a couple of World Cup winners like Jurgen Klinsmann and our manager at the time was Ozzy Ardiles, World Cup winner and just, you know, really fortunate to be around some of the best of the best and I think it was the belief and confidence that they had that they could do the job. Mm. And it was almost like, yes, when you, of course, when you win a World Cup and you when you get to that level, you know, 
it's it's un, easy to understand that they should have belief and confidence in it. But what I saw across the rest of my career of 20 years of playing with both players and, and under coaches was that pretty much everybody had it. Yeah. <laughs> it was this just... Yeah, this. I suppose you don't get to that level in football without being confident in your own ability. Just backing yourself. Yeah. Like literally everybody was doing their best all through training, all week, always wanting to be the one on the ball, always wanting to play, you know. You're always like trying to put yourself forward so that you could get the opportunity to play on a Saturday and obviously to have your career. But it was just that unbelievable confidence of what you could do in your ability. And I even saw that from like the first time. So my first spell at Norwich City was when I just left Norwich in, or sorry, I came to Norwich in 2000. So I had six years at Tottenham Hotspur and when I left in 2000. And I thought, well, I'm coming away from the Premier League down to the Championship. You know, a real football and snob was at the time thinking, <laughs> I'm easily going to walk into this team. And, and I got to Norwich City and we had a 17-year-old kid who was playing in the first team, little Welsh lad, who was like the fastest thing I've ever seen and one of the best players I've ever seen called Craig Bellamy. And I'm seeing him, I was a 21-year-old, seeing him as a 17-year-old and just looking at him going, oh my goodness, the confidence that he had, the standards, he was shouting. I mean, he was, he was, from the outside in, he certainly seemed like a confident individual. It, and, and, that's, and this is what it was. It was the fact that he hadn't done anything in football but he he expected of himself, and that was the big thing, he expected of himself and then expected of everyone else that they had to have world-class standards. Yeah. But it was the, this is the difference I've seen, in, not just in Craig, but in, in lots of the players, is that if people around them weren't matching his standards, he'd call them out. Even at, even at that young at age. At 17. People, and people say that as well. Coming back to a Spanish example, seeing as we were in Barcelona, people say that about Jude Bellingham as well, don't they, at Real Madrid at the minute, that... He's very, very young, but he's not afraid to ruffle people's feathers when he thinks that maybe more senior professionals aren't meeting what he thinks that the standard should be. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I've i never obviously worked in an office and I've never worked in that kind of corporate environment, apart from all of the, the consultancy work and the, and the kind of the leadership programs we're doing. But actually, I've never been in an office where if someone really junior was doing something and there was a senior person in there and the junior person would start calling out the senior person i don't know if that would happen no nah, because it's nah. it's almost like this just this is the rules and this you're is down the here this is the yeah, hierarchy yeah. and you're down here but of course hierarchies aren't very good for that because ultimately what you're saying is that all of the learning all of the expertise is at the top but actually generally what happens is lots of people who have 15 20 25 years of doing something they get quite lazy and they stop and complacent because yeah, yeah. they're like I know, I know, I know what the game is. Yeah. I know the shortcuts. Yeah. I know the way yeah. around it. I know yeah. what needs to be done. Yeah. This is, yeah. But yeah, then yeah. that goes back to me coming into professional football in 1994. I had professional players and coaches who were all doing it like this, but that was not the best way to do it. And there was another way. Yeah. And so it's, that's the difference is, are you even interested in learning to see if there's a better way? And so that's why I think the whole, if there was one thread or almost like one golden key that's kind of come with me through my entire life is how do we do things better? Yeah. And how do we do things differently to improve what I currently have? Excellent. Excellent. Paul, I could, I could quite, I, I say this, I say this to a lot of people when I do podcasts with them and I'd say, oh, I could quite happily talk to you for, <laughs> till the cows come around. But genuinely as a, as a football fan and as, um, as a Tottenham fan, I would quite happily 
um, not go back to work day rising and sit here talking to you for the rest of the afternoon. I probably shouldn't say that as, yeah. as now as a workday employee. Especially because you've got to be seven of these more to do for the rest of today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But it has, it's been uh, an incredible uh, conversation, a really enlightening conversation. Um, it's been fantastic to learn about your career, but also your perspective on on psychology and, and how, like you say, the things that you've learned in your career can be applied um, to the business world. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for coming to Barcelona to, to do it as well. Um, in terms of the, the podcast itself, I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. But if you did enjoy the show, um, you can subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Um, and you can also read more on the Workday blog. Um, thank you for listening and have a great workday. And again, thank you, Paul. Thank you very much, Patrick. <laughs>